Good morning, wherever and however you're watching or listening to me this morning. I'm glad you're here, and I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, book of 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, when we were in Southeast Asia a few years ago, our, our friends there told us this story about a local man who asked them, what is the English word for laptop? And when he asked the question, he said the word laptop in English. And they replied, it's, it's the same in English. It's, it's just laptop. And this guy got really excited. He said, oh, so you use a word from, from our language. You, you borrowed that word from us. And no matter how much they tried, they could not convince him that the word laptop actually originated in English, that they had taken it from us, not the other way around. Now, it would be easy to laugh at how naive that poor guy was, uh, but then we would have to acknowledge that the word naive is a word we stole from the French. Uh, one writer said that English speakers have taken so many words from other languages that we don't just borrow words, we pursue other languages down dark alleys to beat them unconscious and go through their pockets for loose vocabulary. People who study these things for a living estimate that vocabulary we've taken from other languages comprises about 80% of the English language. About 80% of our language is made up of words that we have stolen from other languages which tells me that we probably use words that have foreign origins more than we realize. For example, take these words, bonus, extra, impromptu, intro, multi, semi, per se, status quo, verbatim, verses. What do those words or phrases have in common? They all are Latin. We've simply taken them and made them our own. This morning, I, I want to introduce you to a Latin phrase that you may not know, uh, but I think will help us here in 1 Peter chapter 3. The phrase is Coram Deo. Coram Deo. It means literally before the face of God or in the presence of God. Coram Deo conveys the idea that all of life is lived in the presence of God. And this is certainly a biblical concept. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 139. He says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. There is nowhere we can go and nothing we can do to conceal ourselves from God's sight or remove ourselves from his presence. That truth, Coram Deo, it is crucial to the point that Peter is making here in this letter to a scattered flock. So let's read together. We're going to pick up in 1 Peter 
chapter 3, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pause there and let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word that you have breathed out for us, that we might hear from you. And Lord, I pray that wherever we find ourselves this morning, that we would find ourselves attentive to your voice. So Lord, speak, move through your word, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, before we read just a moment ago, I was describing the concept of, of quorum Deo, that we live before the face of God. But of course, we also live in the world in which God has placed us. We live not only in the presence of God, but also in the presence of others who are made in His image, some of whom are unbelievers. So those are the two truths that I want us to explore together this morning, that we live in the presence of God, and also we live in the presence of the world. We live in the presence of God and of the world. And the order of those two truths is important. Our starting point cannot be our relation to the world. Our starting point has to be the acknowledgement that everything we do, everything we say, even what we think, it all happens before the face of God under His watchful gaze. That is primary, and we should be mindful of it as we live. At the same time, God has sent us into the world as exiles for the purpose of bringing others into His family. He's the one who told us back in chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable. So our primary thought should be, what is honorable in the sight of God? But an important secondary question must be, how can I, how can we live honorably in the presence of the world for the sake of our witness as God's people. We cannot live honorably before God without also considering how to live honorably before the world, before unbelievers. So the order matters. So let's meditate on that first truth, and then we'll move to the second. So first, we live in the presence of God. We live before the face of God. The context here for our passage is very important. I want you to look back with me at verse 12. Uh, Peter's been quoting from Psalm 34. He says in verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So there it is. Coram Deo. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous but the face of the Lord is against those 
who do evil. So when I say we live in the presence of God, I don't only mean that about believers. I mean everyone lives before the face of God. Some of them, His eyes are on them to protect, to uphold. Others of them, His face is against. On the basis of that truth, Peter asks a rhetorical question in verse 13. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Of course, Peter makes it clear throughout this letter that Christians may very well suffer harm. So what then is the point of asking who is there to harm you if he's made it clear elsewhere in this letter that there are plenty of people who may harm you? Well, this question functions a lot like Romans 8.31 in which Paul asks, If God is for us, who can be against us? The honest answer to that question is that there are many people who can be against us and many people who may attempt to be against us. But the point Paul makes is, if God is for us, what does it really matter who is against us? He goes on to ask, it is God who justifies who is to condemn. So if God has declared you righteous on the basis of His Son, it doesn't really matter who may try to condemn you because they, they cannot succeed if God has justified you. In the same way, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can successfully be against us if God is for us? That's the same idea here when Peter asks in verse 13, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The honest answer is, many people may harm you. But no one can bring ultimate harm, eternal harm, to one of God's own. No one can remove us from His presence or loosen His grip on us. As in the words that Paul uses in Romans 8, no one and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why Peter can add in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Even if one of God's children experiences temporary harm at the hands of sinners, they will receive eternal blessing from the hands of their Father. At the beginning of this letter, Peter described that blessing as an inheritance, that is, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. If you are a child of God, you have this hope that God is guarding your inheritance for you, and He is guarding you for your inheritance. So even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And for that reason, we should not fear what others may do to us. That's why he, he tells us, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And then look at what he says at the end of verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. They can't bring ultimate harm to you. 
They cannot remove, remove you from the presence of God. They cannot loosen God's grip on you. They cannot come between you and God's love. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Fearing others does not only mean being afraid of, of physical harm or persecution. There are many ways that fear of others can manifest itself. For example, for some people, fearing others looks like cowering before them. Not necessarily in a physical way, but, but relationally. They sort of shrink back. Maybe they, um, they anxiously work to please others because they, they fear the disapproval of others. We don't want to upset them. We don't want to risk them rejecting us. So we, we sort of cower and shrink. For other people, though, fearing others looks like controlling them. It's, it's not shrinking and becoming small or cowering. It is bowing up their chest. It's, it's being heavy-handed and domineering. We do whatever we can to, to maintain leverage, not to lose any influence or authority. Now, here's the tricky thing. Being controlling does not seem as fearful as the person who is constantly trying to please people and seeking their approval. But it's the same disease with different symptoms. Cowering and controlling are both signs that we fear man more than we fear God. Now remember, when Peter says, have no fear of them, he's not saying, don't worry, nothing bad will happen. He makes it very clear throughout this letter that God's children should not be surprised or caught off guard when suffering or hardship come our way. His point is that we should not be afraid of those who can only do temporary harm. We shouldn't be afraid of those who can't, who can't do ultimate harm. It's similar to what Jesus said in Matthew Chapter 10, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Why? Because you live in the presence of God. He goes on to say, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So if you know that you live before the face of God, and if He is your Father, there is no reason to fear what anyone can do to you, because nothing slips through His gaze. Nothing gets by Him. He doesn't miss anything. Now, Peter does something really important and pastoral here. On the one hand, he needs to prepare his scattered flock for the likelihood of suffering for the sake of righteousness. He needs them to know that they may do everything right and still experience hardship. On the other hand, though, he does not want his flock to expect suffering at every turn. 
That's why he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. And in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. So we should not be surprised by suffering. We should not be caught off guard by it. But we also should not expect it so much that we see hardship where there really is none. I want to try to explain what I mean by that. Let me say, I'll be honest with you, I see both of those two things happening in the American church. They've been happening for a long time and they seem to be even more prominent now. On the one hand, too many people have been discipled to think that if I simply have enough faith, I shouldn't have any trouble and nothing bad will happen to me. If we just have enough faith, we won't ever get sick, we won't ever get hurt, uh, we won't ever be depressed or anxious, and we will be magically immune to any virus that may pop up. That's not faith. That is testing God and its arrogant foolishness. At the same time, and, and sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum, too many Christians have developed this persecution complex where we're constantly looking for persecution and suffering. And so we think that we're victims over things that really are, are petty in the grand scheme of things. The government issues a, a mask mandate and we get all up in arms thinking they're trying to infringe on our rights. Folks, we need some perspective about what suffering and persecution really are. I can tell you this, having to wear a mask when you go to the store or even when you come to church ain't it. There are too many victims of actual injustice in the world for us to cry wolf over things like that. We have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who risk losing their jobs, losing their families, losing their very lives if they profess faith in Christ. So we could, we could do with a bit of perspective about how easy we've had it, relatively speaking. One way that we regain perspective is by reminding ourselves that we live in the presence of God, that under His gaze, He allows suffering, but that doesn't mean that we have to walk around as, as victims because we serve one and we are united to one who has overcome. So the first truth that we meditate on is that we live in the presence of God. We live before the face of God who is all-powerful and all-trustworthy and good and wise. And the second truth is that we live also in the presence of the world. We live in the presence of the world in which God has sent us. Instead of being afraid or troubled, notice what God commands us to do. Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. The more I 
wrestle with that verse, the more convicting it is. Because what that verse implies is that our hope in the Lord should be so obvious, so evident, so compelling that people ask us about it. Of course, sometimes we need to steer a conversation toward the gospel. We shouldn't just kind of walk around and just say, well, I'll just, I'll just wait for that person I know who's an unbeliever. I'll just, I'll just wait until they bring it up. Now, sometimes we have to bring it up. But there's also this expectation that the way we live our lives should, should cause unbelievers to ask us about the hope we have. And if we do decide to initiate a conversation with an unbeliever, they shouldn't be surprised. They shouldn't say, wow, I had no idea that, that you had hope in Christ. They should be thinking, wow, I can't believe it took you this long to bring it up. This is not just an individual thing, by the way. When Peter says there in verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, both of those yous there are, are plural. Y'all, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks y'all for a reason for the hope that is in y'all. So that phrase when he says, the hope that is in you, it's not just about the hope that I have in my heart, although that's true. It's about the church. It's be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is among y'all. So having an obvious and compelling hope is a community project. The way we live, not just as individuals, but together as the body of Christ, it either makes people want to hear more about our hope in Christ, or it makes them want to ignore what we have to say. I don't want to have anything to do with what you people think, the way you live. So our, our goal should be to live in such a way that unbelievers want to know about the hope that is among us. And being prepared to explain this hope is not just something that pastors or professionals are supposed to do. This is for every single follower of Christ. You don't have to be an expert, but ask yourself this question. Could I give a coherent explanation of the Christian message to an unbeliever in a way that makes sense to them. I'm not asking you if you can explain the intricacies of the Trinitarian doctrine to an unbeliever. I'm not asking you if you could explain your position on eschatology to an unbeliever. I'm not asking you if you could explain any number of doctrines. I'm asking you if somebody came to you and said, what must I do to be saved? Could you give them a coherent answer in a way that they, that, that they could understand? That means that we might have to, to sort of lose some of the, the Christian jargon that we sometimes use. You know, when, when Jesus, in John 3, when he talked to Nicodemus, a man who had every reason to boast about who he was, about where he had come from. What did Jesus say to him? Nicodemus, you must be born again. Your birth that you're so proud of, it means nothing. You have to be born again. 
In the very next chapter, John 4, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman at a well. Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman could not be any more different. Man, woman, Jewish, Samaritan, super respected and, and super not respected. And what does Jesus say to the Samaritan woman at the well? Does he sort of have this kind of canned presentation where he goes to her and says, Samaritan woman, you must be born again. No, that's not what he says. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. So to Nicodemus, someone who was probably tempted to trust in who he was and where he had come from, Jesus said, you must be born again. And to the Samaritan woman who had come to draw water, Jesus said to her, hey, drink this water, you're going to be thirsty again. But I have water that you can drink and you'll never thirst again. He didn't change the message. He just changed the way he presented it. And we too need to be able to express the unchanging message of the gospel in a changing culture. And we should strive to do it, as Peter says, with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. We could use some of that, couldn't we? It matters not only how clearly or how cleverly we can articulate our hope, we also need to live in such a way that our hope is compelling to others. And when we have other opportunity to talk to others about our hope, we need to be able to do it with a humility, a gentleness before God and toward others. And we need to be able to do it with a reverence for God that results in respect for others, which is simply to say we should have compassion in our heart for unbelievers. We shouldn't have any anger toward them. We shouldn't have any hatred toward them. We should have pity and compassion upon them because they do not have hope, and we do. And so we should live in such a way that, that they would want the hope we have that they would even want to come to us and ask us about it. And we should also be ready when they do that to be able to explain that in a way that makes sense to them, but also to do that with humility and respect. Now, now here's the thing as we try to find a way to apply this passage to ourselves. I simply want to remind us that we cannot control how people respond to the gospel. We cannot control how people respond to us as we seek to fear God and please Him. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, Peter told us that the reason we should keep our conduct honorable among unbelievers is so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But notice what he says here in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, We should maintain a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So apparently, some unbelievers will see our good deeds and glorify God. They'll become a part of His family. Others will see our good deeds, but they will revile them. And they'll be 
put to shame, Peter says on the last day. And when he says there in verse 16, that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, he's not talking about them being embarrassed. That phrase being put to shame is a, a way of speaking of final condemnation. It's the shame of, of hell. That those who refuse to repent and listen to the gospel will experience eternal shame. But the point is, we cannot control whether the unbelievers around us will respond to our gospel witness and to our Christ-like behavior by glorifying God or by being put to shame. What we can control is whether our behavior is indeed Christ-like and whether our hope is compelling and whether our witness is true and gentle and respectful. Those are the things we can control. We're going to pick up at verse 18 next Sunday, Lord willing, but I want us to cheat and, and glance ahead to it. Look with me at verse 18. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I wanted us to notice that so that we will not make the mistake of thinking that our standing with God depends on our righteousness. Jesus is the only perfectly righteous one. And he suffered for us, the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. If you're a child of God, Jesus is your example. That's the point Peter's going to make there in verse 18 and following. That the reason that we should be prepared to suffer for righteousness' sake is because that's what Jesus did. We're simply following the pattern that he traced for us. But if you are not yet a child of God, before Jesus can be your example, He must first be your substitute. Before you can follow in His steps, you have to first put your trust in Him, that He suffered for your sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring you to God. You have to rest all of your hope in Him, the sinless Son of God who suffered for your sins and for mine. If you have never trusted in Him, and surrender to Him. I want to I plead with you to do that today. I hope that you will reach out to me so that we can talk more about that. And, and I will be praying for you that God, by His Spirit, will convict you of your sin and impress upon you the need to, to run to Christ, not to delay, because today is the day of salvation. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is good. Lord, we, I have been chastised and convicted by this word, and I pray that those who are listening to my voice right now would, would be the same. But Lord, you also comfort us, and your word is a balm to us, that you, you break us in order to heal us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be broken before you today that none of us would, would hold up our good deeds, but that we would cling 
to the goodness and righteousness of Jesus. Lord, especially for those who are not yet your children, Lord, that they would not waste a moment. But right now, even as they hear my voice, Spirit of God, that you would move in them and draw them to trust in Jesus and turn from their sin. And Lord, for those who are listening to my voice who are children of God, I pray that you would help us to to live in such a way that our hope is evident and compelling and that we would be ready to to speak of it to others in in a gentle and respectful way. And Lord, that for all of us, you would remind us today that we live before your face in your presence. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.